In this sermon, I make reference to a picture of the gates of Hades in Caesarea Philippi. Here at the sermon audio page, there's actually a PDF file a little further down the page if you'd like to get a look at what the gates of Hades in Caesarea Philippi look like. As always, I count it a tremendous blessing and privilege to open God's inspired, infallible word with all of you. The truth is, I've been waiting for at least six months to preach this sermon, and I am quite excited, which, Lord willing, will not manifest itself in any fleshly way this morning. So here goes. The sermon text for this morning is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. It's a pretty large swath of the text. Please turn there, if you will, to follow along. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. And I want to take just a moment just to give you a little insight as to how Pastor Scott and I decide how small or how large a text to give all of you in one sermon. Because there's definitely more than one way to present these things from the pulpit. Pastor Scott's sermon from last time is a great example. He, if you remember, took a pretty large piece of Matthew from 1529 through 1612. And these large swaths of scripture are decidedly different from the way that I've been dealing with Hebrews on Wednesday night, for example, or the way that Pastor Mike has been preaching through 1 Corinthians. The reason we've been taking larger portions of scripture in the gospel according to Matthew is primarily because of the nature of the genre that we're dealing with. Hebrews and 1 Corinthians are didactic, they're teaching, they're theologically heavy portions of scripture which beg for exegesis, a focused analysis of the text where we labor to draw out of the text, that's what exegesis means, we draw out of the text the detailed meaning of what the author is conveying. Matthew is obviously a narrative text. Not that there isn't theology in the narrative, and I'll give an example of that in just a moment, but here in Matthew chapter 16, for example, thir- verses 13 through 28, these deal with one long interaction between Jesus and his disciples. And the entire episode occurs while they are in Caesarea Philippi. And the word episode is key. So Pastor Scott and I have been giving you full episodes. And just for bookkeeping purposes, the next episode comes to us in Matthew chapter 17, the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus on the mountain, coming soon to a pulpit near you. So ahead of time, please note, when Peter declares in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, that Jesus is the Christ, I will not be spending much time on the topic of what or who is the Christ, the prophesied Jewish Messiah, although I could do that. It turns out that Brother Dave Lewis is going to take that on during a Wednesday evening Bible study sometime in February. Instead, I want us to look at this entire episode in Caesarea Philippi. Because Jesus is aiming at something here. And I don't want us to miss the forest because we're staring too long at the individual trees. So after Jesus had fed the 5,000, then the 4,000, and then warned his disciples about the leaven, the teaching of the Jewish religious leaders, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, you can see it there. Jesus, and please listen, this is so important. Jesus takes, Jesus leads his disciples into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And the proper interpretation of this episode depends on the fact 
that Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. And by the end of this sermon, I trust you will see why. So Jesus leads his disciples into Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking along, he asks them a question. Look at it, please, with me in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now do you think that Jesus doesn't know the answer to this question? Of course he does. He's not asking this question of his disciples in ignorance. He's asking them this question because he wants them to consider this same question. And he is on the verge of revealing something outrageously profound to them. So verse 14 says the disciples answer him this way. They said in response, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And these answers aren't all that unreasonable. Frankly, Jesus was a bit of an enigmatic figure, right? He's hanging out in the wilderness. He's saying wise things. John the Baptist had been beheaded. So maybe God had taken the spirit of John and placed it on Jesus in some mysterious way. Herod had already speculated as much back in Matthew chapter 14, verse 2. And the prophet Malachi had prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of Yahweh arrives. And so maybe this rabbi walking around in the wilderness was Elijah somehow. So we see lots of speculation among the people in Judea and in the surrounding areas. But that's not really the point. The point is that Jesus is going to ask them, his disciples, the same question. The question of all questions. It is the question that not only must his disciples answer, but also it is the same question that every single person on planet earth must answer. It is the question that you must answer, friends. And the question is this. Who do you say that the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, is? And I want you to know this, and if you don't hear anything else that I say here this morning, your answer to this question, the question of all questions, who do you say that Jesus is? Your answer to this question definitively determines where you spend your eternity, whether you spend your eternity condemned to hell or an eternal bliss in the presence of this same Jesus. He, Jesus, verse 15, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And I imagine a pause. Because what is about to be said is one of the most profound statements that has ever been uttered. Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. 
This is the first big reveal in our text this morning. This Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. This Jesus who has been leading these disciples around for the past two years is literally the son of the living God. And thus, because he is the son of the living God, he is unique. He is the God-man, fully divine, fully human, at the same time as difficult as that is to comprehend. And Peter literally has no idea what he's saying. Because Jesus has to tell him that he, Peter, didn't conjure that answer from somewhere inside himself. No, the pompous Peter was the instrument that the Father used to reveal this great and glorious and infinitely profound truth that Jesus of Nazareth, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus of Nazareth was and is the promised Jewish Messiah, the one prophesied about more than 300 times in the Old Testament and who has come to deliver God's people from their slavery to sin and death. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Listen, all of you come here to hear the word preached and to learn doctrine and to learn about God and to learn spiritual things from preachers and teachers like me and Pastor Mike and Pastor Scott and Pastor Jason and Brother Dave and that's good and right. You should come to hear these things and you should bring your friends but because there are no more important things in the universe than the things that we are discussing here. But we know, the elders know, that if any of you learns anything, it is taught to you by God himself. In this age, that is the Holy Spirit of God. We are not the source of the water that satisfies your thirst. And any man who even implies that he is the source of that, he is a liar. We are merely the conduit through which these beautiful, wonderful truths flow. We are nothing. God is everything. We must decrease. Jesus must increase. So the first big reveal for this morning is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the promised Jewish Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, let's get to the second big reveal in this text. Please pick up with me in verse 18. Jesus continues speaking to Peter. Verse 18, Jesus says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you buy on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, so much has been said about these statements from Jesus, as he is, yes, please hear me, he is speaking to Peter, to my Protestant brothers and sisters. It cannot be denied that here in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is speaking to Peter. He says, you are Peter, verse 18. And he, Jesus, says to Peter, using singular pronouns, I will give you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, singular, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you, singular, loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
And of course, the reason why this makes us uncomfortable is because of the interpretation of these things by the Pope in Rome. So let's just face into it, okay? Let's deal with the text as it is and draw proper exegetical conclusions. Shall we? We're going to take them in reverse order. At the end of verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, please look at it with me. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, if you read a couple more chapters in Matthew's gospel, you will find this. Please, quickly turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus again speaking to his disciples. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault, but you and him alone, between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Truly, I say to you, plural, Whatever you, plural, bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you, plural, loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, plural, that if two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, I'm not going to deal extensively with this text in Matthew 18 this morning. That is for a future sermon, Lord willing. The point is this, though. Whatever Jesus is saying to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, he, Jesus, extends it to all of his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, such that Peter is not unique in this binding and loosening. What does Jesus mean by binding and loosening? Let's deal with that just for a moment. It was very common terminology in Jesus' day with respect to what Jewish rabbis would say to Jews who were trying to understand what the law required. One Jewish rabbi would come along and he would bind the Jews. That is, he would place a burden on them as a means to interpret the law. And another Jewish rabbi would come along and loosen the Jews, that is, remove that burden. And these debates, these disagreements were quite common in the first century. You can actually pick up on a little bit of this if you read the Gospels closely. Ultimately, though, the point is this. Jesus looks at Peter, and later in Matthew chapter 18, he looks at all of his disciples, and with his kingly authority, he says to them, please listen, soon, no longer will God's people look to the Jewish religious leaders for an authoritative declaration as to what God requires. Jesus says to them, no, soon enough, God's people will look to you, my disciples, for an authoritative declaration as to what God requires. And friends, here it is. Specifically the New Testament, which is God's inspired, infallible word for God's new covenant people. Written by those who had experienced the teachings of Jesus Christ, both during his earthly ministry and after his resurrection from the dead. Now, please turn back to Matthew 16. 
Matthew 16, in verse 19, Jesus also says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. See it there. Now, so many things have been said about this particular sentence. The Roman Catholics have one view, which undoubtedly developed over time and is now something that has grown to be out of control. Like a bit of a bad weed, I would say. And the reformers came along 500 years ago or so and did a good job of correcting this view. Brothers and sisters, the explanation is simple. If we will only be good Protestants and let the scripture interpret the scripture. Listen. (laughs) A man who carries, a man who holds the keys to a kingdom is what we would call a steward. I mean, can you imagine a king, okay? He's showing off all his treasured possessions to some distinguished visitor, as King Solomon did when the Queen of Sheba showed up. And he's fumbling around in his kingly robes for a set of keys. It's it's ridiculous, right? It's undignified. The king doesn't carry his own keys. The king brings his visitors to the door of his treasury. And the steward opens the treasury door so that the guests can see that which the king possesses. I mean, is this difficult to understand? I'm speaking in simple terms. Now, simply, how does Peter play the role of the steward of the king, King Jesus? How does Peter, the man, the Apostle Peter, how does he alone, listen, how does he alone play the role of the one who opens the door to the treasures that King Jesus possesses? You know, like, say, the treasure in the field. Matthew Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Or the pearl of great value. Matthew chapter 13, verse 46. Well, if the treasure in the field and the pearl of great value represent the gospel of the kingdom, which they do, then Peter plays the role of steward, listen, by being the first person to preach this glorious gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and he's also the first person to preach this glorious gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius' household after his vision from heaven, Acts chapter 10, which Jason read. And they were astonished that the Holy Spirit of God fell on the Gentiles too. Peter, again, and this is all that this statement means. Peter was given by Jesus himself the privilege of opening up the treasure of the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And friends, once that door was open, it could not be shut. This then is what it means that Peter, yes, Peter, was given the keys of the kingdom. And this gospel which we preach here at Abiding Grace Church, it was unlocked, it was revealed by Peter himself. And this was all, all fulfilled in the earliest days of the church. And you can simply read about it in your Bible. Now, 
Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. Please look at it. Jesus says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Here we are then at the second big reveal. And here I must remind you of where we are. Or rather, where Jesus and his disciples are. They are in Caesarea Philippi. Why is that important? It's important for two reasons. First, because in Caesarea Philippi, there are the gates of Hades. Not hell, but Hades in the Greek. The place where the dead go. And second, because in Caesarea Philippi, these gates of Hades are at the base of a gigantic rock. So we have some show and tell here this morning. These pictures, by the way, were taken by Brother Bill, sitting right over here. You can ask him about it. Trip to the Eastern Mediterranean to see biblical geography. And when you go to Caesarea Philippi, you don't go to the town hall. You go here. Because this is the most important thing in Caesarea Philippi. You can see here in this picture, the spring coming out. And in the background, there's this massive rock. If I get a little closer, you're approaching the base of this massive rock. And you get to see a couple of things. Among them, this cave. This cave is historically referred to as the Gates of Hades. Friends, listen, please. Jesus was not simply wandering around the eastern Mediterranean region and he and his disciples just stumble into Caesarea Philippi. And he doesn't just decide on a whim to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Because he had some bad fish for dinner the previous evening. No, we have said before, and I say again to you this morning, everything that Jesus is doing on the backside of Matthew's chiasm, his chiasm mountain in this last year of his ministry, everything that Jesus is doing, he is doing on purpose. And here in Matthew 16, it is no different. Jesus leads his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus, listen, he takes them to the most pagan place he could. Within walking distance of Jerusalem, he takes him to the very gates of Hades, where the pagan worshippers, listen, this is so important, the pagan worshippers believed that the so-called fertility gods would go into these gates, into this very cave, during the winter, and as spring approached, these pagans, who were worshipping would commit detestable acts to summon these gods back from the dead. He takes them, Jesus takes them to the most pagan, religiously defiled place he could walk to and he asks his disciples, now who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter in response, and, and it's not inspired, but I imagine some hand gestures. Perhaps he puts his hand on Peter's shoulder and he says, 
you're Peter, which in the Greek means you're a stone. And perhaps he now turns his gaze to the massive rock that they're standing in front of. Maybe he even points, I don't know. And he says to all of his disciples, now, upon this rock. Please note this word for rock is the same word Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7 when he was talking about the wise man who built his house upon the rock, upon a foundation. This is not a mere stone that we are talking about. Jesus says to his disciples, upon this rock, upon this foundation that contains the very gates of Hades, this is where I'm going to build my church. And these gates of Hades that you see right here, they will not be able to stand against it. We have zero biblical warrant for Peter or any of the other disciples or apostles to believe that Peter was being referred to here as the rock upon which the church of Jesus Christ would be built. For example, Jesus does not say, you are Peter and upon you will I build my church. Jesus is clearly referring to something else in contrast to Peter. It's a different Greek word. Similar, but not the same. Peter himself makes no claim to the first or best or highest anything in his sermons, in Acts, or in his epistles. In fact, James is the one who presides over the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Not Peter. The apostle Paul, while he's in Antioch, has to correct Peter for his undercutting of the gospel by his refusal to eat with Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2. And listen, if this doesn't seal the deal for you, I I can't. Just a couple chapters later, we were there. You don't have to go there now, but please just listen. In Matthew 18, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9, which is after the episode in Matthew chapter 16 at Caesarea Philippi, the disciples are walking along with Jesus, and they're arguing with one another. Now, what is it exactly they're arguing about? They're arguing with one another about which one of them is the greatest. Question, why would such an argument among the disciples even be necessary if Jesus had already settled the issue in Caesarea Philippi? Beloved, this is the second big reveal for this morning. What is the rock upon which Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to build His church? It is not a person. It is not some priestly class in context. It is the massive rock in Caesarea Philippi that contains the literal gates of Hades. But it stands. It represents something more. That rock in Caesarea Philippi, it represents all that is pagan, all that is ungodly, and all that is demonic in this world. If it's pagan, Jesus says, there, I'm building my church there. If it's ungodly, Jesus says, there, I'm building my church right there. And if it's demonic, Jesus, the King, the Son of the living God, He looks at it and He says, there, I'm building my church right there. And nothing pagan, nothing ungodly, nothing demonic will ever be strong enough to withstand it. 
Jesus takes his disciples to the most pagan, the most ungodly, the most demonic place within walking distance of Jerusalem. And he says to them, I mean, imagine how stunned they would be by this. This group of Jewish men who were waiting for the return of the glory of the kingdom of Israel. He takes them to the most pagan, the most ungodly, the most demonic place. He could take them on foot and he says to his disciples, here friends, here, it's right here I'm going to build my church. And they're stunned. As some of you are. But listen, their astonishment, it's not even over. It's not even over. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. I want you to look at, it's so important, this little prepositional phrase at the beginning of verse 21. Do you see where it says, from that time? Please note, here in Caesarea Philippi, standing before the gates of Hades, Jesus, for the first time, tells his disciples that he's going to be killed. And listen, he stares right into the cave that leads to the place of the dead. And he tells his disciples, I'm going in there. And then, I'm coming out. Defeating death once and for all so that my people never have to die again. John 3.16, Brother Jason spoke it this morning. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes on Him will never die, but have eternal life. This is the third big reveal. And Peter, I mean, have you ever wondered why Peter responds to Jesus the way that he does? Think about it. Why does Peter rebuke Jesus the way he does? Look with me at verse 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. God forbid it, Jesus. Didn't you hear what I said? I just said you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. God forbid it, Jesus. Can the one true God of Israel really die? Say it isn't so, Jesus. God forbid it, Jesus. Please don't tell us that the one true God is even remotely like these pagan gods who supposedly die and rise again every year. Listen, Peter and the other disciples, these guys have no idea what's going on. Whatever little faith they had, and it was small for sure, as Pastor Dave preached back in December, whatever little faith they had is completely shaken at this point. And Peter lashes out at his master, because that's what Peter does. He opens his mouth when he should keep it shut. We'll see that again in Matthew chapter 17. What does Jesus do? Verse 23, he responds in kind. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, 
Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You know, it's funny sometimes how theologians, well, they they theologize. That's what they do. Look with me at verse 20, which I skipped over. Maybe you noticed. Verse 20, Matthew 16. Then he, Jesus, warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. In theological circles, statements like this in the gospel accounts are referred to as the messianic secret. And tomes are written, big books, as to why Jesus Jesus repeatedly told his disciples not to say anything about his identity as the Jewish Messiah. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, seriously. Do you think Jesus wants these guys who literally have no idea what's going on, one of whom has basically scolded him about his most important task, going to the cross to die for the sins of his people, do you really think that Jesus wants these guys to go out and say anything to anybody at this point? At least one of them is a representative of Satan. The time will come when these men, even Peter, as we previously discussed, even Peter, as he unlocks the treasure of the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, the time will come when these men will tell the whole world that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but not yet. Jesus' work has to be done. Jesus must go into the grave. He himself must go down through the gates of Hades, down to the place of the dead, and then he comes out once and for all, defeating death forever by his own resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit of God will come, and then, and only then, will these disciples of Jesus understand what happened and preach the glorious gospel. But not yet. All right, let's finish up this morning with some application. I have two points. Before I do that, very briefly, please look with me at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 16. Verse 28. Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Mark it down, please. We are not going to get to this today. But it's coming. So just make a note in your Bible that Pastor Scott and I are going to come back to this. And there's plenty to say on this topic. Two points of application. Point number one. Look with me, please, at verses 24 through 27. After Jesus tells his disciples for the first time that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the Jewish religious leaders and be killed and be resurrected from the dead on the third day, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he then says this, verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and will then repay each one according to His deeds. Brothers and sisters, let me put it very simply. The way of the Christian must be the way of our Christ. Look with me again at verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, these things you just told us, they shall never happen to you. Here, Peter's mistake is that he believes in what some call a theology of glory. One writer describes the theology of glory this way. Please listen, quote, A theology of glory expects total success, finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always to grow. If a theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. And if he experiences failure and weakness, if his church has problems, and if he is not healed, then he is often utterly confused, questioning the sufficiency of his faith, and sometimes questioning the very existence of God. End quote. Now, do you see Peter's mistake? We don't need to die, Jesus. Don't ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus. Instead, you deserve a steed fit for a king. And even after the cross and the resurrection, listen, these disciples say to him, Lord, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1 verse 6. They still don't understand. Because the spirit hasn't come. That happens in Acts 2. This is error, brothers and sisters. In contrast to the theology of glory is the theology of the cross. And we don't need any theologian to define the theology of the cross for us, for Jesus has himself has done so. And it is this, deny yourself. Take up your cross, the one assigned to you by God himself, as a gift designed to draw you to himself. Take up your cross and follow your master right into the very presence of the Father. Your pain, your struggle, your anxieties, your concerns, take them, take them up. Don't medicate, don't resist them, don't complain about them, and don't let them make you bitter. Take up your burden. For this is the way of Jesus Christ. And he should know because he took your burden, the burden of your sin and the wrath that you deserve. He took it upon himself. Has he not already said to us in Matthew chapter 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, says Jesus, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Give up your life to Jesus Christ. Lose your life to Him. Listen, lose your life to Him and He will give it back to you redeemed and renewed. Jesus says, lose your life for me, for my sake. And paradoxically, it is only then that you will truly find it. What profit is there if you chase after the things of this world and then lose your soul? Don't trade what is eternally valuable for the things that will burn in the end. Look around. It's all going to burn. 
It's going to burn when the Son of Man comes in the glory of His Father. And He repays every single person according to the deeds that you have done in this life. And only a fool, listen, don't be a fool. Only a fool would make such a trade. Jim Elliot said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's the first application. Shun the path of glory in this life and take up your cross joyfully to follow the Master, to follow the Christ, to follow the Savior, to follow the King. He's calling you right now. Whether you're sitting here and you don't know Him or you're listening on sermon audio. Point number two. And I want to return to this rock in Caesarea Philippi. This rock upon which Jesus Christ has said that He will build His church. And I'm going to finish up with this this morning. I said earlier that that rock in Caesarea Philippi, though it is real and physical, you can see it, that rock that Jesus and His disciples were standing at the base of, it represents all that is pagan, all that is ungodly, and all that is demonic in this world. And that it is upon these very things, these very places, that Jesus is going to build His church. And successfully build His church, we must add. For none of these things, Jesus says, none of these things will be able to withstand it. What does this mean for us? What should we do in light of these words of Jesus, our King? Well, I'll tell you. It's not just what we ought to do, brothers and sisters. But there are clear implications here for what we ought to be as well. First, what we ought to do is we ought to go from this place and preach this gospel of the kingdom to every creature. Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His victorious resurrection, His glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father, where He now sits and is poised to return once and for all, not for sin, but for judgment. That's what we ought to do. But also, listen, what we ought to be is bold. We ought to go to the hardest places. We ought to go to the most pagan, the most ungodly, the most demonic places and people we know of and preach this glorious gospel of God's amazing grace as found in the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. We ought to go to these places and we ought to go to these people and we ought to boldly tell them about the King Himself because those are exactly the places and those are exactly the people where Jesus tells His disciples and you and me, He says to us, these people and these places are exactly the places where I'm going to build my church. And they will not be able to withstand it. I mean, I don't have time to get into it this morning, but isn't that what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens in Acts chapter 17, which Brother Jason read earlier? He picked literally, listen, he picked the most pagan place in the Roman Empire, and he goes there, he walks around a bit, checks out the place, and then he declares, really, this is what he does, right? He stands in front of these pagan philosophers, the elitist of the elite thinkers and theologians of his day, and he looks 
them right in the eyes and he tells them, he declares that God himself has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ who he was raised from the dead. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. This is our charge. We have said before, so now I say again, Matthew's gospel is headed towards one place, towards one statement from the lips of the risen Jesus. And you all know it. Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely, surely, he says, I am with you. Even to the end of the age. So beloved, let's go. Be bold, not arrogant. The gospel is offensive enough. By God's grace, we will not add to the offense in our presentation. But brothers and sisters, let's be bold. We are are ambassadors of the greatest kingdom that has ever been conceived. And there is grace upon grace for the most wicked of sinners, the most pagan, the most ungodly, the most demonic sinners. There is grace enough even for these. It's really that simple. Let's go and ask people the question of all questions. Who do you say that this Jesus is? Beloved, the answer to that question determines a person's eternal destiny. Why, why, why would any one of us keep any of this glorious good news to ourselves? Let's pray.